This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Are you going to go up to the podium? Yeah. Hello. I've been asked to introduce zero history and briefly, briefly describe its themes. And, and that request throws me back to the beginning of the, the pre-launch, pre-tour phase of the publication of Zero because every time, whoa, every time, is it, I can't put my hands in my pockets. It's the wires. But every time I publish a book, the first thing I'm asked is, what's it about? And, and what, what the themes are. And it puts me, it puts me in an awkward position because I, I don't, work that way at all. I don't have ideas and generate narratives in order to, to illustrate them. And in fact, when I'm, not, when I'm not writing, when I'm actually not writing fiction, I scarcely have ideas at all. And it, it, I find that to be a, a, a fairly happy state for the most part. <laughs> but... When I write, when I write fiction for, you know, whatever, whatever reasons, I find ideas through, through the narratives. They're not, they're not always, they're not always very defined. But as I continue with the narrative, they they tend to re-complicate and circle around and come back. And, and you know, at the beginning of my career, I secretly suspected that I was only pretending to be a novelist and that I'd found a, a way to cheat and do something that looked like a novel and, and was shaped like one and provided an experience rather, rather like reading one but that I was actually cheating because I was forcing the reader to provide the ideas. That I would get the ideas and, and the themes were only revealed to me after the book published, published and read and responded to. And 
I've, I've gradually, since I've been doing this for a while, I've gradually come to the conclusion that in a way that's exactly the case, but that that's okay. So that I, I'm getting my ideas from you and I'm finding out what the book's themes are from, from the readers. And I think that the, the next work in, for me always emerges from that. Someone always tells me in, in the course of all these post-publication exercises what the current book is about. And it hasn't quite happened, it hasn't quite happened with this one, although I think it may, it may, be, it may be getting there. And it's, it's something like, people keep asking, some journalists, some journalists ask whether or not I look at these, this particular three book movement as three snapshots of the zeitgeist taken over the previous 10 years or so. And I was thinking, no, not, ex- not exactly. But I've started, I've started to realize that, that, the thing that I'm, the thing I'm disagreeing with is snapshots. What I think these three books are is a sort of very, like a decade-long pinhole exposure on the first decade of the 21st century. And in some very real sense, the camera doesn't move very much. The, you know, the film, the film stays where it is and the decade, the decade passes and the, my characters in some ways repeat actions from from the previous from the previous books and so the whole thing becomes the three books become a sort of palimpsest where one book the one narrative is superimposed on on another and at the end of the sequence you're you're looking through it all back to back to the beginning at least it's like that it's like that for me and i think that's about all i have to have to say about it so you can see why i never like to address these questions but <laughs> thank you very much i get the feeling it's like there was an uh, uh, paper set for you, and there were a bunch of essay questions, but at the beginning there was just a little blank for you to write, what, state concisely the theme of this book, and you just ended up turning over the paper and filling up the entire yeah. paper with that first question, never got on to the next one. I, I have a, a, a hypothesis, actually, about what the theme of the book is, uh, and I think that it's related to the themes of your other books, which is, it's a kind of exploration of why Bohemia matters, what threatens Bohemia, why it's so incredibly fun to threaten Bohemia and to exploit and commodify subculture and, and just why people actually run around doing it and how seductive that might be. Uh, and, and I got this idea when I went back and looked over the interview we did for the Globe and Mail in 1999, I think, for um, Tomorrow's Parties. 
And that's what we were talking about back then too. We were talking about this idea that uh, marketing <coughs> companies and, and uh, corporations had figured out how to commodify Bohemia so quickly that it may not even exist anymore. That we went from a year for punk to show up in the high street, six months yeah. for grunge, and, and now, then, it seemed like it was happening really quick. What I wonder, though, now that you're participating in this kind of network subculture, is do you see that still happening? Do you think that there's a, a big end who's going to figure out how to commodify <coughs> 4chan? You know, is Anonymous ever going to become a high street brand? I don't think so. I have... My sense of it is that we've rolled over into into something else and bohemias don't don't live where they used to it's like it's distributed now it it might not even be <clears throat> you know people who seem to be full on bohemians whatever that would mean today uh, often seem seem archaic to me. It seems it's almost an archaic stance. But I meet people who have really strong splinters of bohemianism <laughs> through otherwise conventional personalities and lifestyles, and that seems to that seems to be that feels new to me. Do you think that this is uh, that that um, this is a feature and not a bug that we've kind of figured out how to make our peace with the commodification of the things that that are personal and and how to kind of peacefully coexist with this commodification by allowing these splinters to to be to define our identity instead of saying I am I am goth fear me yeah it might it might be and it, but it might also it might also be that. Commodification, that kind of commodification may be, may have made itself less possible through the the virulence of its previous mechanism. Like we may not, we no longer grow. We, we no longer grow the full beef of Bohemia. It's all veal now. <laughs> and, and does Bohemia still matter? I, I, got the, I get the impression when I go back and read the earlier books that there's, a, that there's kind of lurking in them a belief that um, Bohemia, it's like, it's like our, our uh, soul. It's, like, it's the secret wellspring of our power. Uh, as people, and that when it goes away, that we lose something that we never get back again. Um, but, you know, in, in the last three books, you've really made taking away people's bohemia for fun and profit seem really exciting and somewhat cool. Uh, does bohemia still matter? Did it matter then? Or was, am, I, am I wrong about the relationship you had to bohemia in the earlier books? No, I don't think you're... I don't think you're wrong, and it's... I don't think I don't feel as though I've I've I'm reneging on it but I think it's nature 
I think its nature has changed. I, th I think Bruce Sterling was the first person to suggest to me that Bohemias have been the dream time of industrial societies. And that was really, really resonant for me. But if we are in fact a post-industrial society now, are Bohemias the same thing? Bohemias may, may have been a function of the modern project. And now we're so, now we're somewhere else, and and all of that impulse may have been paid forward into something that we can't yet really really see because it's so it's so new. Hmm. So back in '99, we talked about Japanese subculture, which in '99 was was still pretty firmly bohemian. You kind of you needed to really work at it yeah. to be a North American anime fan. Yeah. Uh, whereas today, you kind of have to work actively to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, I said, Japan. Well, Japan's kind of cool, but why not China? And you said, Chinese popular culture has never evoked that instant of, whoa, what's that? And that was 99, obviously. That was before, just before the WTO, just before the largest migration in human history just before China assumed factory duty for the rest of the world. It's probably true that like 95% of the manufactured objects in this room came from somewhere near Guangzhou. Uh, do you still have the, how do you feel about China these days? You know, that container ships are showing up in your books. Is, is China on your mind? You know, it's still not doing it for me. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't know I don't know what that is, except that I'm, I'm not really in the business of registering, whoa, you should check this place. You know, it's, it wasn't, uh, I think because I got in a bit early with the Japanese thing, like I put, I made Japan a, a superpower in, in my fiction about two seconds before the world noticed that Japan had actually become an economic superpower. So they said, he's, he's prescient. Look, he saw, he saw it. But actually, I just liked Japan. And I, I continue to find Japan a really, a, really interesting, a really interesting place. I try to find China a really interesting place. And, you know, I'm a, 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 a monthly faithful giant robot reader. And, you know, I keep hoping that they will lead me into some, some wonderful hookup with, with Chinese, Chinese pop culture. But it never quite, it never quite makes, me, makes me jump. I like it. I like Chinese popular culture better when it's left home and being affected by another place. What's and, an example of that? Well, giant robot off, right. the, off the top. But not, is Singapore still Disneyland with the death penalty? Mm, I'm not willing to go back and find out. <laughs> You know, it's funny, when I went there a few years ago with Bruce Sterling, uh, everyone I met said, 
you know we're not Disneyland with the death penalty. Literally every single person I met, they, they've got this complex about it now. Well, you know, good for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll do something about it. <laughs> so you say you had the uh, inadvertent prophetic moment with Japan and, and you were just introduced as someone who's prophetic. And I, I, my reading of, of the way you think of your work is that it's anything but prophecy. Is that right? Yes. And so what is it? It's presentism. What's presentism when it's at home? Well, when you... My, if, I were try, if I were teaching a, a science fiction writing course, I think I would, I would tell, tell, tell my pupils that the way to have people think you've got some sort of you know, inside, inside deal on what's going to happen is to look at all the things that are around you in, in the present moment and find the ones that have the most interesting or obvious legs to carry them, carry them into the future. And because really I think that's how, that's how we all do it. We may not all, all think of it in, in the same way. But, I, you know, I'm currently assuming that all science fiction is based on the author's sense of reality now. And that's certainly how we read it in retrospectively when we go back and study science fiction historically, that it's not about the future, it's about 1948. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really think that this is the case. I think you find out a lot about uh, any culture's fears and aspirations for technology by reading what its science fiction writers were predicting about the future. You find out almost nothing about the future yeah. that they entered, but you find out a lot about yeah. their present. I, I brought this up on a panel once at a convention, and Silverberg said, oh yes, that's the Robert A. Timeline business. Uh, so Robert A. Heinlein was always putting these long timelines in his books of, of what he apparently earnestly thought was the future. Do, do you think that there's like a moment at which science fiction writers understood that that was just hubris? Or do you think it's a even, do you think that we've actually reached that? Or is it a small elite club of SF writers who feel this way? I don't know. I grew up with those I grew up with those timelines. I've realized recently, thinking about my childhood, that I educated myself in the history of the previous 20th century by reverse engineering 1940s science fiction. Mm -hmm. So I found 1940s SF before I had ever read any history at all. And even you know even before the 20th century was on on television and the 20th century was quite a lot of my basic history history education but i had to reverse engineer all those astounding stories that i would find moldering in the, in the backs of magazine shops I had to figure out what the world was in which they had been written in order for them to make any sense. So, for me, the fascinating thing is what happens when readers read science fiction 
and go on not to write more science fiction, but to make stuff. And to make stuff that has the science fictional bit in it. When Motorola yeah. engineers go out and watch a lot of Star Trek and come up with a flip phone. And, yeah. you know, you imagine somewhere Roddenberry's going, oh, I predicted it. But it's not really a prediction at all. And you've had certainly a lot of those uh, crop up. What's your relationship like with them? Is there a kind of fatherly pride, embarrassment, something in between? Well, I was... I didn't think... I mean, when, when I started writing science fiction... I didn't, you know, I didn't even think of myself, I didn't think of myself as a person, a person writing cautionary tales. And, and I didn't think of myself as a, a person predicting, predicting the future, but, you know, in the course of writing, I realized that I was describing some fairly troubled relationships with, with technology and trying to de de describe the emotional, to some extent, the emotional lives of people living in those relationships with technology. And that seemed to me to be at the core of what I was doing. And I remember being slightly taken aback when I first met people whose reading of, reading of my fiction was completely technical and who felt nothing but enthusiasm and a burning desire to build it and have <laughs> it right, have it right now. I would like to have the emotional life of a panther modern. How do I go about yes, achieving yeah. that? How can I? How can I? How can I do? How can I do that? So, but you know. Well, I think it's because they were all so bohemian, right? I mean, you know, for all of their, their failings and for all that, you know, Molly Mirashades had to go be a sex slave in order to get her claws <laughs> implanted, she was insanely cool, right? I mean, she was, she was part of the bohemian world and, and she was not some self-loathing Trustafarian in, you know, uh, Brooklyn or Shoreditch. She was like the real authentic thing. Uh, and so, of course, people who read that stuff went, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome to be like that? Mm, I suppose. I mean, I never thought that they were that. I never thought that they were that remarkably bohemian. Those characters. I think it depended. I think it depends on one's experience level. I mean, how? I mean, and to some extent, look, Molly's cartoon-like. There's actually a, there are a couple of uh, point of view flaws in Neuromancer, where the book suddenly acquires a narrative voice, which it's not actually supposed to supposed to have in quite that way. And one of those is one in which it it suddenly goes off on this rant about how how Molly is like Bruce Lee and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and, you know, she really, she really is. She's like, at least in Neuromancer, she's like a, a really, really high-quality cardboard life-size cutout. Hmm. Really, like, glossy <laughs> and high-res. But she's not, you know, she's not that much of a not that much of a human. When she comes back later in the series 
I was already, and she's older, and has had some setbacks. I was already trying to find the band, emotional bandwidth I needed to represent human beings more naturalistically. So getting back to zero history, I think Big End is, is one of those... Um one of those people who, for all that he's a bit of a cipher, he's certainly in the round in, in that you really feel his kind of chortling glee at pulling apart these authentic subcultures and turning them back into brands. And it seems like it's the mirror image of the street finds its own use for things. This is Madison, Addison, Madison Avenue finding its yeah, own use for the street. Yeah, Biggin finds his own uses for things. For the street. For the street, yeah. exactly. So, you know, what's... Is, is, uh, is there a way that Big N could ever find a use for it? You, you talked earlier about these diffused subcultures, and you said, well, they're too diffused to pick up. But some of them are just too toxic to pick up, right? Like, how would, you, how would Big N commodify something like Anonymous, who, you know, for, for all the... They go around taking down horrible law firms that, you know, bulk sue British music downloaders... They're kind of horrible in a lot of really awful ways. How does, how does that ever get commodified, or does it? Does, did, have they figured out the answer, and the answer is to just be so horrible that no one will ever, you know, just use the word fag as so often that no one will ever yeah. turn you into a, uh, a, a brand? Maybe. But in, it, it's, you know, how would you... I'm curious about how you would define a bohemia, or even not define, but how would you describe a bohemia in the sense we're, we're both using it? Because for me, it, it has a lot, you know, there are a lot of things one needs to, to have, a, have a bohemia. Bohemians have dress codes and uh, styles of of romance and and sexual mores, favorite drinks, specific kinds of of music. That traditionally they've mm-hmm. they've all had those they've all had those things. And I don't think we I don't think we have that I don't think we have that today because something's something change something has changed and something's split off and I was walking through Covent Garden today and I saw a young man in a tweed jacket with a particular kind of beard and I thought D.H. Lawrence hipster icon this is the, <laughs> these guys are trying to look like D.H. Lawrence and that the way D.H. Lawrence looked is now much more powerful than what D.H. Lawrence wrote huh huh and that, that that's uh, in some ways, it's not an entirely new ball game. I think it was happening. It was happening in the in the '60s, certainly, and and maybe maybe earlier. But it's sort of become so much of the ball game now, and yet there wouldn't be an entire there wouldn't be an in, entire lifestyle attached to looking like D.H. Lawrence the way there once would have been. It would simply be, the thing would be to, you know, be a young man looking like D.H. Lawrence. And you could sort of pick and choose the rest of it. 
So one of my favorite all-time William Gibson lines is, don't let the little fucker's generation gap you. And, which is that neuromance, I think it's yeah. Dixie Flatline. And, and, you know, whenever I run up against a subculture that seems, inc- you know, just so offensive that it couldn't possibly be commodified, I always wonder, is this just, am I just being generation gapped? Am I just being leapt here? That, that in fact, if I were 17 years old, Anonymous would be, uh, would be just as cool a new tray as, you know, all the stuff I was into when I was 17, and I'd be right in there with my Guy Fox mask. Is that all that's happening? We're just old? I don't know. I, I mean, it would be sad if, you know, I, I don't have the feeling that nothing is happening. I, I just have the feeling that most of what's happening is, is happening on some different field and has increasingly been happening on some different field since we had that conversation that, that we're referring back to that I think Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins, Interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents that's right three months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, we said it was all going to be exponential change from then on in, and perhaps it has been, but not necessarily in ways that we're able, we're able to see. So I want to segue from that into like uh, kids and parenting advice because I've been I've been collecting cyberpunk parenting advice. I uh, I asked Rudy Rucker when, yeah. when we were thinking about having a kid, and he said, "Oh, you should have a kid. Kids kept me cool." And Rudy's a very very cool grown up. And then I asked Bruce Sterling, and, and Bruce said, um, no matter how outre or bohemian I was, that I would inevitably end up embodying contemptible bourgeois normalcy for my kids someday, which is a very Bruce Sterling bit of, of, uh, of, of uh, advice. And Pat Cadigan seems to thrive enormously on the adventures of her kids. And I know you were a stay-at-home dad when you started writing. You wrote your first several books, I think. 
at home with the kids, right? Yeah. So, so tell me about parenting and kids and generations, because here you are with your kids sort of thrusting themselves into the future that you never tried to predict. And does, does that make you want to predict the future? Do you ever go, gosh, I wish I could think a little more clearly about mm. where my kids are going to end up? No, it actually fills me with some... It, I think it fills me with some anxiety when, as a non-futurist civilian walking down the street, I sometimes try to imagine the actual world that that my kids might be living in in 20 years. And it's a different, you know, it's a, kind of a different sort of, a different sort of ball game. I don't, I, you know, but as for like, like being a, a cyberpunk parent, I doubt that I really, I really doubt that I would have written very much if we hadn't had kids when we did and if it hadn't fallen to me economically to be the one who stayed home and took care of them because I wrote really my first three novels as the house parent while my wife was teaching at university. And, you know, you have little kids, they go to sleep and you write. They wake up and you quit writing and they go to sleep and they go to sleep and you write. You can't go out. You can't go to the pub or a coffee shop while while they're sleeping. You have to be there. And it helps if you're very poor because you, you can't afford anything to distract yourself while they're while they're sleeping, so you write. And it was, you know, it's good. It's, it's good that way. The thing that, one of the things that makes me feel weirdest about science fiction is that moment when you, you hear a science fiction writer who you've always had, had some respect for go into one of those after us, the deluge rants, that invariably kills it for me. That, you know, you're with somebody, you're with somebody who is like incredible, whose work was incredibly stimulating when, when you were younger and they're older now and they, they go into one of those. The kids are just fucked. Everything is going to be bad forever. It's never going to be as good as it was when we were, we were young. Look what they're doing. And, you know, for me, this really set, that's like the ultimate turnoff. There's something that just sort of quietly shuts down. Ah. Well, so, so uh, kids uh, have picked up on a kind of 20-year-old, 25-year-old meme and turned it back into a subculture that has all kinds of funny little network corners, and that's steampunk. Uh, and I'm uh, writing, supposedly writing the, uh, right now the, 20, the introduction to the 25th anniversary edition of the, of the Difference Engine. Yeah. I don't know what to write yet, so I thought I would start by asking you, what would you like to have said about the Difference Engine 25 years later? Hmm, that it's an incredibly peculiar piece of work. And basically just that. Like I, it's the <laughs> only... It's the, just that. <laughs> it's the only one of... It's the only novel that I've ever written any of that 
I go back on a fairly regular basis and reread for pleasure. <laughs> I don't I don't do that with my own solo solo outings, but the difference engine can still, you know, just I open it at random and read a bit. And it fills me with, with some kind of loopy delight. And in part because it's so damned peculiar. It really is a, an extraordinarily odd piece of work. And I, I, you know, given the personalities involved, I think it's a miracle that it exists at all. <laughs> what makes it so peculiar? Well, when Bruce, when Bruce discovered the word processor, and he beat me, he beat me to that because his father had had an apple. <clears throat> his father had had an apple too, and had gotten an Apple IIc, or maybe a Mac. I think his father had gotten the first Mac, and he gave Bruce the Apple II, and Bruce had never used a, a computer before. And he called me up from Texas, and he said, I've got this machine here, it changes everything. And I said, oh, I don't know, it's still words in a row. And he said, no, no, he said, you can, you can chop it up. You can move the bits around. He said, and you can airbrush the joints. He said, it's like, it's, it's like Burroughs cut up method, but you can airbrush the joints and you can't see the difference. And he said, and you can file the serial numbers off anything. And so I went out and got one and, and was quite, quite happy with it. But I didn't really discover what he meant until we were well into the difference engine. Large hunks of swaths of which consist about 80% of wonderful copyright-free Victorian pulp literature with the, the, you know, well, they didn't even have serial numbers, just like put it, you know, collage it in, airbrush the, airbrush the seams, and you've sent your character through something that's so much weirder than anything anybody in the 20th century could ever, ever have imagined. With, with, and often with a huge specificity of, of detail. And whenever I find myself reading, reading one of those parts of the thing, I, I'm just like, you know, it makes me chortle with, chortle with delight. There's a, <clears throat> they find a, they find a, the corpse of the, the Texas Ranger who killed Sam Houston's, President Houston's publicist in London. And the corpse is found in an attic. And, and in, in this garret, there are dead cacti in cages hanging hanging off the wall. And that's just a detail from an actual sort of, you know, police illustrated monthly murder scene. There's no explanation for it. It's just part of the <laughs> actual Victorian reality. Today you could have copied and pasted that text out of like Google Book Search or the Internet Archive. You wouldn't have even had to rekey the old Victoriana. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. And Bruce spent, you know, Bruce did obsessive yeoman duty in the vast Victoriana collection of, of the University of Texas mm. to 
photocopy those things and, and mail them to me in Vancouver and we'd go, oh, look at this. So look they, what we could do. Make Magazine just asked Bruce why he thought the Difference Engine came out and 20 years later, steampunk subculture emerged. And he said that he thought that um, anything that was too geographically di- diffused to field its own zine or to uh, uh, you know, form its own convention just didn't start as a subculture until the net came along. And the net made it possible for geographically diffused groups of people, like people who quite yeah. like dressing up in brown. Yeah, you know, that makes... Liz, yeah. what's, her, what's her name? Uh, uh, Sherry Priest says, steampunk is what happens when goths discover brown. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's actually my, my single favorite ever statement on steampunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, th- you buy that, you think that this is... Why this is what happened in the intervening twenty years? It's just the internet, or well, is there something about our moment? I've never been completely sure. You know, I wouldn't want to be the first to say that that steampunk derives exclusively from from the Difference Engine. The Difference Engine is is obviously a sort of proto steampunk artifact and has a lot of, you know, passionate, wacky descriptions of gear yardage. But it doesn't... The visuals, you know, the visuals I had with the Difference Engine don't look that much to me like the visuals I see coming... Coming out of coming out of steampunk, and I actually haven't been, with a few marvelous exceptions, haven't been that impressed with very many steampunk artifacts. So I have a prop now. Uh, so when I blogged this, you said it was. What did you say? You said it was the um, probably the single best steampunk objet I've seen. What you didn't know is that I'd already bought it. This is Absolutely. this crazy steampunk fetish mask from. Uh, from uh, a guy named Sergei in Ukraine who calls himself Bob Bassett for reasons I don't entirely understand, who makes these, these awesome, crazy-ass... I think they're modeled on old Soviet gas masks, these, these, these things. So <laughs> I, I, I'd be interested in hearing what you think makes this different from the other steampunk objet that you've seen. One way in which it's remarkably different is there's no extraneous decoration. Hmm. And there's an, an excess of... <clears throat> there's an excess of extraneous decoration in, in quite a lot of steampunk makings. And I think it comes from an, uh, probably an instinct to reverse modernism's stripping of, of, decor- of decoration. But when you simply reapply decoration to late modernist objects, it, I don't know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It was, the modernists got rid of it because they perceived most of it as being a kind of florid romantic kitsch anyway, and putting florid romantic kitsch back on something doesn't, doesn't make it better for me. This, however, is completely bent and, <laughs> and peculiar and slightly, slightly disturbing. <laughs> 
You know, I, it strikes me that the kind of inverse of steampunk subculture is mall ninja subculture. Because it's mall ninja subculture is all about not admitting that you're pretending. And mall ninja subculture is, is about this kind of, it's a posture of deadly seriousness. You know, the, this, you know this, as near as I can work out, the mall ninjas in zero history have their origin in this wonderful shrine to the mall ninja on the internet. Is that right? Mm, I, w- I wish they did. No? They, they, I know the shrine to the mall ninja. But the mall ninjas in near zero history have their origin in a... In a a web, gal- a web galaxy of, of stuff for people who aren't military and aren't law enforcement officers, but who, as near as I can make out, want other people to think that they're probably carrying a gun. Yeah. And yeah, this it's is every a- accessory ever conceived of for a Crown Vic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's... And yet, I don't think they are carrying guns. <laughs> so I can't really, I can't really see where the the fantasy goes. And it's interestingly, it's the the mall ninja look is the opposite of what security people call the gray man look, which is the way the way you dress when you're you're carrying a gun. And you don't want anybody to to notice you, to notice you at all. And the guys who do that wear baggy khakis and these days almost invariably striped polo shirts. Striped polo shirts in Afghanistan are the new "I'm an operator" badge. Wow! And if you wore one, if you if you wore one in Afghanistan without being an operator, someone would tell you not to not to do it. Do they? Uh, is it is it just gang colors, or is it something about the way that a striped polo shirt deforms that hides the stripes themselves are like razzle dazzle? No, it's it's things like this are almost uh, things like this are almost arbitrary. It's a power mm. costume, mm. and it actually goes with a particular cut of beard. I, I was told, I was told recently, like like a particular shape of beard, baggy, baggy, sort of you know, Ralph Lauren polo chinos, and a regular short sleeved, wow. horizontal profiteer chic. Yeah, <laughs> and it could, but it could have been, it could have been anything. I mean, it could have been a cowboy shirt. But it's Only just, then they would have blended in in Brooklyn again. So. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a, it's just the code. But none of those, none of those guys would be caught dead wearing any any of those uh, tactical, tactical things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we're at Q and A time here. We have a mic. Um, hi there. Was was there any kind of moment that you decided in this first before writing the first book in this trilogy? That you wanted to write a character, a uh, a cultural recycler like like Big End. No, <laughs> there's Big End. I originally assumed I assumed in pattern recognition that Big End would be a, initially assumed that he would be an occasional walk-on character whose job would be to walk on 
give Case Pollard some impossible mission and charge up her American Express card. And I really thought that that was all he would be doing. As soon as I got him on stage, he started spouting quasi-situationist gibberish that, that seemed to, to make a weird sort of sense. And, you know, I, I sort of backed off and, and let him go for it. And, you know, lo and behold, he became, I think, the only, the only common character straight through the three, the three books. And, like, I had no, I had no idea. And I'm totally happiest working from the dream state. I only wish it were easier to find it. I always thought that Big End had, uh, was kind of the, the bizarre world, Bill Gibson recycling pop culture and making money out of it. And... Yeah, he might be, although I know that I was thinking today, I guess because I'm in London, that my very brief and not really not very major Hollywood involvement with Malcolm McLaren has a something to do with something to do with big end because in in McLaren in Hollywood up close was literally you know the sort of the most like the perfect chancer hmm. he just didn't care or, you know, he really didn't care about the outcome other than he was, it seemed as though he would do anything at all just to see what was, to see what was going, going to happen. And he could run rings around Hollywood business people. He just couldn't get them to do anything. <laughs> but he could, he could terrify them into, a, into an amazing, uneasy silence, which I thought was a pretty good trick. More questions? Uh, hi, you talked about the um, dream state and how you find it easier to write then. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, burgeoning young writers and writers in general in relation to that in terms of um, how to go about turning their ideas into fiction? Well, I mean, I always go back to this totally annoying advice that Robert A. Heinlein gave, which I still think is the best advice for young writers, and it's that you have to write, you have to finish what you write, you have to submit what you write for publication. While you're waiting for it to be rejected, you have to write something else. And, you know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. If you don't keep doing that over and over, nothing will happen. And I think I first read that when I was about 14 14 years old and I still think it's like, it's the best it's the best advice I mean my way of I wouldn't try to teach anyone to write the way I write because it, you know it would drive somebody else crazy or lead them you know result in absolute failure but if you follow Heinlein's advice <clears throat> you'll discover your own way of doing it, which will be absolutely as peculiar and idiosyncratic as mine, but it will work for you because it's yours. And you won't, but you won't get there 
unless you follow Highline's advice. And you have, to, you have to write. You have to sort of write all the time. And it, for anyone considering becoming a writer, one thing you, you have to ask yourself is how comfortable you are spending big hunks of your time regularly in the absence of everyone else in the world because it's a it's a solitary it's a very it's a very solitary thing to do and i mean i can i sometimes imagine what it would be like living with a writer i imagine myself married to a writer and i just kind of go ew <laughs> And then I look at my wife and I, you know, feel like increased, increased gratitude because she, for some reason, is the one woman in a thousand who's quite happy with a guy who goes in the basement all day <laughs> and, and only occasionally pops out, but then goes into like, like weird peripatetic periods of, of enforced self-promotion like this one. <laughs> right. But really, if you want to write, you have to, you have to write, you have to finish it, and you either have to submit it for publication or show it to another human being. And, and you have to get used to, get used to doing that. Other, otherwise, it, it's unlikely that much will happen. I think the best writing advice that I didn't listen to for the longest time was to write every day. And I always assumed that people who said that were like people who claim that you should drink, you know, 16 glasses of water a day and exercise for an hour every day and eat five servings of vegetables every day. And they were just sort of kidding. And it wasn't until I started writing every day that I realized that a thing that you do every day, if it, if, even if it doesn't become easy, it becomes automatic. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I have to turn up every day. And... That was the, that was really crucial for me when I was starting out to get that. Like there are days, there are days when I turn up and nothing happens. And, or there are days when I turn up and I write a little bit and it's just not good. But there aren't too many of those. And the important thing is, is turning up and assuming the position and making oneself ready for the writing to happen, and then trying, trying to do it. Sometimes you, I, I start, and it's not good, and it's not happening, and then suddenly it starts. And it's not, when the writing, I don't have any, any control over when the writing thing comes, so the best I can do is to go every day to the hole in the fence where the writing thing is not to come. <laughs> And it, it optimizes the chances the writing thing the writing thing comes, and the more if you can get the writing thing if you can get the writing thing really really going it, it'll come every day for weeks on end. More show of hands. You you need to wave at the microphone people, not at the stage people. You oh, could I ask you about um, your relationship with music? And if it's changed, I'm hi. <laughs> um, if it's changed from when you first started writing to now, and how you see music now and in the future, um. well, it's much more. 
when I started writing, I think I was, I was near the end of a stage, in, a stage in my life in which I took it absolutely for granted that who I was was in some large sense informed by who I was listening to. And in, it, in some ways I see my... I started writing out of a sort of very delayed adolescence. Like I was about 25 when I started trying to take it, take it seriously. But I, in, in some ways I was a very young 25. And it was all still terribly important to me who I listened to. And if you didn't listen to who I listened to, you probably weren't really, really with it. And I, I don't have that relationship to music now. I just listen to what I like to listen to and, and take what pleasure I can from it. And, and I'm not at all evangelical. So I think that when I started, music was like the tail end of, of the children's crusade of the 60s for me. And it, it was still sort of illuminated, illuminated with that. So now it's not... I think music is... Popular music has gradually become less of a source of imagery for me. That would be one way, one way to put it. More questions? I, I, I'm over here. <laughs> I was um, wondering, there's an interesting kind of parallel with this. Um, I, my background is in anthropology as somebody who kind of remembers being very young and watching uh, what turned out to kind of be now contextualized as the last vestiges of modernity really falling down, like kind of the the Cold War ending and, and having that weird straddling of sort of history as knowable, which then collided with history as sort of actually unknowable, and then went on to study this. And one of the things that's interesting is you read about like the golden age of anthropology where people think they can know and they can predict the future and that the point of kind of a lot of human endeavor is to get that predictability in there versus this kind of crisis that happens with thinking in really in the, in the 80s um, and goes on through the 90s where the knowable isn't really knowable for a huge host of reasons, like this sort of humanity comes back into things. And I wonder if you feel like maybe some of the shift in this cycle of the new is not just like a technological reality, but is also sort of like a totally different paradigm that kind of comes in because the hubris kind of evaporates, like after the the structural reality of, you know, the Cold War and what modernity was kind of seen to mean and deliver falls down. You know, you're left with a reconceptualizing of everything. Well, yes. I couldn't... <laughs> I like that. I like that. Although I, I couldn't paraphrase it to save my to save my life, but <laughs> it sounds very much like the inside of my own head sometimes. So yeah, something 
something like that. I do think that, that there are sort of overlapping and ongoing and innumerable paradigm shifts underway for us right now in a way that isn't entirely un, unprecedented. I think if we, if we looked more closely at what the Victorians went through here, we'd, we'd find some very similar tonalities. Things changed, changed here very quickly and, and not everyone liked it, but they also had no idea how crazy it made them. And I think that one thing that's going on, if I could know, if I could have anything from the future, just one body, specific body of knowledge from the future, and that would be all I could get, I'd want to know what they, what they think about us. I'd want to know how they see us because I think that would be the crucial thing. Because if you look at the way the Victorians saw themselves, as opposed to the way we see them, and that's continuing to change as our forensic abilities increase, there's just no, no comparison. They had, relatively speaking, no self-knowledge. I would propose that from the point of view of the future, we are equally without self-knowledge. Well put. I think we're at time, is that right? Well, it remains only for me to thank you, Bill. Thank and to, you. And to say that if, you've, if there's one quote I'll take away from this, it's, my problem is that I find everything increasingly interesting. I think I'm going to have it on my tombstone. <laughs> Thanks. So, it's uh, a good way to be. We'll be in the lobby next. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>